0: Hey, it's Jacob Goldstein. Today, we are re-airing a show we did last year.
1: The name of the show, Why Buying a Car is So Awful. We chose this one partly because it's a very interesting story about something most of us go through several times in our lives.
0: Uh, We chose it also because there was some relevant news this week. Tesla Motors is an electric car company that sells its cars directly to consumers. This seems straightforward enough, but as it turns out, selling cars this way is illegal in many states. Just this week, New Jersey officials said Tesla will have to close its doors in their state. Our show today is about those state laws, how we got them, why we still have them, and how they affect us every time we buy a car. The show is hosted by
2: Alex Bloomberg and by Sonari Glinton, who covers cars for NPR. Here's Alex. There is a process that some 14 million Americans go through every year. It happens in every state, every city, every town, every day. Americans of every age, race, creed, or class go through it, despite the way it makes us feel.
3: It makes me feel manipulated.
2: I hate the, I hate the haggling. I hate the lost weekends. I feel
1: stupid, weak, and powerlessness, I think. just I want to get out of there.
3: It also
2: takes forever. If you guessed what is buying a car, drive on down and collect your prize.
0: Experts will tell you buying a car is one of the most stressful economic transactions most of us will go through. We're spending a lot of money and we're worried that we're getting taken
2: advantage of. We're afraid that salesmen are using tactics on us. A woman named Kathy Champagne told me she's bought over a dozen cars in her lifetime. And the same thing has happened to her every time. Her and the salesman will come to an agreement on the price. She feels like it's done. And then they'll say... I just have to check with my manager,
3: and they go into their manager's office, which has a big glass window, so you can see in. Uh-huh. And they, and then they can proceed to wave their arms around as if they're arguing. So you know, we're supposed to think that the salesman is saying, you know, I'm going to lose this sale if we don't come down on the price. And the manager says, that's ridiculous. We're not going to make any money. That's what we're supposed to think they're saying.
2: Uh-huh. Wait, and you think it's not? Do you think there's not actually an argument going on?
3: Well, they might be arguing about like baseball or something. I don't I don't think they're arguing about the price.
2: Kathy Champagne told me that this has happened so many times that now when she goes to buy a car, she brings her knitting with her. So she'll have something to do during this routine in the manager's office.
0: And in survey after survey, people rank buying a car as one of their least favorite experiences. And in surveys asking people to rank most and least trusted professions, car salesmen place at the very bottom, below stockbrokers, insurance salesmen, and even members of Congress.
2: Which raises a question. Why is it so bad? Why hasn't someone come along with a better way to sell cars where you don't have to haggle and you can actually trust the salespeople? And for that matter, why is anything about car buying the way it is? Why, for example, isn't there a car store where you could go in and shop for different brands of cars the same way there are electronic stores and clothing stores and grocery stores? You don't have to go to the Tropicana store to buy Tropicana juice and to the Ocean Spray store to buy Ocean Spray juice. So why did Kathy Champagne, when she was shopping for her last new car, have to go to the Subaru dealer to look at Subarus and to the Audi dealer to look at Audis? Did it ever cross your mind, like, wait, why isn't there a place where I can buy both an Audi and a Subaru?
3: No, that's a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be so convenient. Yeah, right? <laughs> And I never thought about that. Hmm. Interesting.
2: Well, we're going to answer that question for you. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. It's coming coming up. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg and I'm joined on the program today by NPR's business reporter, Sonari Glinton. Hey, Sonari. Hey, Alex. You uh, cover the auto industry. That's why you're talking to us today. And I, I want to ask you, do you want to just do the honors here?
0: Of course. On today's show, why car buying is unlike any other consumer experience out there, why it's so unpleasant, and what your local legislators may be doing to keep it that way. We're not the first people to think, hey, there must be a better way of doing this. The business graveyard is Filled with them, for example, Scott Painter, who way back in the late '90s was going to change the car business, sell cars directly to consumers on the internet, no haggling required.
1: So the name of the company at the time was Cars Direct, and uh, the, the mission of the company was to sell cars directly. Buying a car sucks, and it's something that most consumers fear, and that was really what we were trying to address.
0: All right, Alex, you're you're too young to remember the 90s, but the internet was changing everything. Scott Painter put together a business plan, raised money from investors, and set up meetings, lots of meetings. And one of the most important
1: ones was with the
0: then-CEO of Ford Motor Company, Jack Nasser. Here's Scott Painter
1: again. I mean, we went to Dearborn, and we sat down at the top floor of uh, Ford's office building in Dearborn. And... Jack came in and there was Bob Ruey and a whole bunch of other folks from Ford, and everybody was very serious and he says, "You know, what can I do for you?" and I and my answer was, "I'd like a virtual dealer point. I want a franchise and I want the ability to sell anywhere without geographic restriction and and I can tell you that that is the most naive question to ask Jack Nasser now looking back at it, like there's no way we were going to get a virtual dealer point, nor would they would they even consider it
2: the reason Scott Painter's request was so naive that they would not even consider it? Well, here, let me read it to you. Alabama Statute 82113, Title 8, Chapter 20, Section 5. Quote, limitations on cancellations, modifications, terminations, and non-renewals of franchise relationships. Pretty much every state has a law like this Alabama law, laws which make it very difficult for Scott Painter, for anyone really, to sell cars in a different way.
0: Before we explain why, let's just remind everyone the way cars are sold. So they're the manufacturers. So like Ford, Toyota, Volkswagen, they make the cars. The people who sell them and fix them, those are America's nearly 17,000 new car dealers. They're in every town, every city. They make a lot of money. And over the years,
2: they've gotten very good at getting laws passed to protect their business. Fiona Scott Morton is an economist at Yale, and she studied the economic impact of these laws. And she says that that Alabama law and almost all these state laws keep the current dealer system locked in place. So, for example, if you're Ford and you want to close a dealership, it's not that simple. Pretty much every state has a provision making it hard.
4: The manufacturer, the new car brand, may not terminate a retail dealership without cause, where cause is, you know, something terrible like fraud or or whatever. So in other words, if the dealership was established in 1962 in a town with a lot of people, um, and now nobody lives in this town, the dealership uh, cannot be closed by the manufacturer. And it by also... Law. By law. Mm-hmm. Um, unless... Uh, They were to reach, uh, you know, an agreement, which would involve the manufacturer paying the dealership to give up its its right.
2: This is the case in almost every state, even when the contract is expired. So if GM has a five-year contract with a dealer somewhere and that contract is up, by law, GM cannot just let it lapse. They can't just say...
0: It doesn't make sense to have a dealership way over here. In many states, they have to ask permission from a special motor vehicle review board. And who's on those boards? Well, usually, by law, it's mostly other dealers. Michael Levinson is a lawyer for auto manufacturers.
1: I think most manufacturers uh, have the view that it is uh, almost impossible to terminate a dealer
0: Fiona Scott-Morton says this is at least part of the reason why buying a car can be so unpleasant.
4: The manufacturer has a very hard time incentivizing the dealer to behave well, to provide good customer service, low prices, uh, nice facilities, anything else, because they cannot threaten to take away the franchise. The, that franchisee gets to stay as long as he wants, and if he does a bad job, that's, that's just what he does.
2: So termination provisions, that is a big part of all these laws. Another part, this is the part that really got in Scott Painter's way when he tried to sell cars on the internet. Sonari, you want to read it? All right, Alex. This is from the Massachusetts dealer franchise
0: law. No manufacturer shall enter into a franchise agreement with anyone, quote, situated within the relevant market area of an existing motor vehicle dealer representing the same line make, unquote.
2: In other words, each dealer has a territory defined by state law, and no one is allowed to sell the same brand of car within that territory. So Scott Painter, when he was meeting with Ford and saying, I want to sell cars on the Internet, was basically asking to sell cars in every auto dealer's territory in every state of the country. You can imagine the legal challenges that might bring. So essentially, every part of the process is governed by the state
0: law. Who can be dealers and where they can set up shop, which banks can offer financing. These laws even explain one of the weirder things about the auto industry. Why are so many dealerships run by their children or the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren of people who started dealerships? As a dealer, the right to pass the business on to a son or daughter is protected in the law, whether the manufacturer wants it or not. Again, Michael Levinson
1: and so the result is that manufacturers find themselves uh uh with dealers who are not ones that they would have chosen to represent them in a particular marketplace
3: the the
2: the option of giving this dealership to your son or daughter is enshrined in law
1: uh yes uh that that's <laughs> why that's, one, that's one, one way to put it yes
2: The list of these provisions goes on and on. There are laws about warranties, about allowable hours of operation. And economists say that all these laws have a cumulative price tag. All these extra dealers in places where they're not needed, the higher price due to the lack of competition. If you are buying a new car, all this stuff adds on average an extra $1,800 to your bill. Last year, we sold about 14 million cars. That means that together as a nation, we are spending an extra $25 billion a year more than we should on new cars.
0: Now, if you talk to auto dealers, they say basically these laws and the extra costs are really necessary.
3: We need these state laws to protect our investment, not just the investment in our business, but our investment in the people.
0: Tammy Darvish runs Dar Cars, which is a group of dealerships in Maryland and Florida, and she sits on the board of the National Automobile Dealers Association. And she says it makes sense to protect dealers because they're vital to their local communities.
3: If you just take our organization alone, we, we, we employ a little over 2,000 people. That's 2,000 families throughout greater Washington that are dependent upon us continuing um, our, our business operations.
0: And it's not just the jobs. They buy ads in the local newspaper. They sponsor the local Little League teams. They're important to the local charities and the economies of their communities.
2: Now, this is not the sort of argument that sways economists. In their paper on dealers, Fiona Scott Morton and her co-author write, quote, if additional subsidies to Little League and local newspapers are desirable, artificially high profits for auto dealers would be a peculiarly inefficient way to provide such subsidies. As we say in the economics world, scenario: Boom. <laughs> <laughs> but but
0: Tammy Darvish makes a second argument that the dealer business is unique. The barriers to entry for a car dealer are incredibly high. They have to lay out the costs up front. They buy the cars from the manufacturers, often before they're even finished being built. They have to service those cars and they have to buy parts thousands and thousands of parts. It's a lot of money out of pocket. So if the manufacturer, say, were to set up another dealer across the street or decided to stop selling cars to that dealer, the dealers could lose millions and
2: millions of dollars. Now, again, economists would say lots of businesses have high upfront costs but manage to survive without special legal protection. But Tammy Darvish, she doesn't see it
3: that way. It's a significant investment. Mm -hmm. And we signed up for it. Right. But- As, you know, a part of that, all we asked for was a little protection. And I think we deserve that.
2: Now, there is a history here, a history between the auto dealers and the auto manufacturers, a history that goes back a century and that helps explain where a lot of these laws come from. So our current system of lots and lots of local dealers all over the country, it goes back to the 1920s. Back then, the problem of how to sell a car, it was actually a pretty thorny one. Cars were big and expensive, and they were harder to move around the country than they are today. There was no interstate highway system. And cars back then needed a lot of repairs. So a huge network of localized dealers with service centers attached, that made sense as a distribution system. This
0: system worked very well for everyone. Things changed, though, during the Great Depression. Nobody was buying cars, but manufacturers kept making them. And then they made dealers buy them. And they said, basically, if you don't buy our cars, we're going to cancel our contracts with you. Now, remember, this is long before there was competition from the Japanese or the German automakers. These were the largest and most powerful companies in America, and they were not always nice. And essentially, they pushed
2: the little guy around. And in this case, the little guy was the local car dealer. Over the years, a dynamic emerged. Dealers felt manufacturers couldn't be trusted and that the dealers needed protection, legal protection. And that's when these laws that we've been talking about first started to appear. The first franchise law was passed in 1937. Over the next couple of decades, many others followed.
0: Now, that's how we got where we are today. Of course, it's a very different world now. The big three automakers, Ford, GM, and Chrysler, they used to be some of the largest, most powerful companies
2: ever. Now, not so much. Dealers, on the other hand, because of all these legal protections they've managed to pass, have become even more powerful. In each state, dealers contribute as much as 20% of sales tax revenue. Auto dealers, taken as a group, are usually one of the state's biggest employers. They contribute an average of $13 million to their local economy. So if you're a state legislator and the 15 auto dealers in your district want to keep these franchise laws in place, you tend to listen. So this is
0: how we got to the world that Scott Painter, the founder of Cars Direct, found himself in. Since the late 90s, he's fought against this world. But finally, last year, he had to give up.
1: There is no argument by which franchise law goes away and there is no there is no opportunity for that it it, it is pure purely a fantasy conversation
0: Scott Painter has a new business, TrueCar.com, and it works within the existing system. The idea is much more modest. So no revolution over here, folks. No trying to sell cars over the internet. At TrueCar, you put in your zip code and you find out what other people paid. And then it'll point you to a local dealer who promises to sell you that car at a no-haggle price. Meaning Scott Painter often has to do business with dealers, the people he used to fight against. And they occasionally remind him
1: they won. I remember having coming out of one of these meetings and, and one of these dealers that's a huge detractor, just thinks that we're the worst thing in the world for the business, you know, came and said, I think that you went through all this transformation and all this change because we made you. You didn't really want to do it. And I I'm there and I'm in front of twenty or thirty people and I just said, you know what, I in thinking about your question, you're right. I I probably wouldn't have changed had it not threatened the survival of the company. Everyone we talk to in this story, Tammy Darvish,
0: lawyers for the auto industry, Scott Painter himself, said that his original dream, a friendlier, more rational car buying experience, it'll eventually come around, but it won't be without your local car dealer.
2: As always, we welcome your thoughts, questions, comments. You can contact us at Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, or at planetmoney.com. I'm Alex Bloomberg.
0: And I'm Sonari Glinton. Thank you for listening.